Hello and welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is Journeys from the Past. My name is Andy Davis. The purpose of these podcasts is to inspire listeners to courageous, sacrificial actions to make progress in the two journeys, the internal journey of holiness and the external journey of evangelism and missions by learning the stories of our heroic brothers and sisters in the past. And today we're going to learn about John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe. And the story begins with a strange and sinister action. The year was 1428, and Roman Catholic authorities burned the body of John Wycliffe and scattered his ashes into the nearby Swift River. Now, such violence is shocking to our modern ears. We're so accustomed to religious freedom, freedom which guarantees that we will never be burned for our religious convictions. But any student of history is well aware that such freedom was not the case at all during the Middle Ages. The Roman Catholic authorities regularly burned the bodies of people it deemed heretics or dangerous. And they certainly considered John Wycliffe a dangerous heretic. What is unusual in the case of the burning of Wycliffe's body in 1428, however, is that he had been dead for over 43 years. He had died in his bed in Lutterworth, England, and had been buried in sacred ground right there in the church's ground in the church's parish cemetery. Despite this fact, the Pope considered Wycliffe's teachings to be such a dire threat that in 1415 at the Council of Constance, 260 of his doctrines were denounced as heresies, and even then it wasn't until 13 years later that the Pope gave direct orders to exhume his body out of its grave and to burn his bones as a warning against any who would follow his heretical path, something he felt should have happened while Wycliffe was still alive. And as I mentioned, his ashes were scattered into the nearby Swift River, and a chronicler who lived around that time in the 15th century wrote these words about it. Thus the brook hath conveyed his ashes unto Avon, Avon into Severn, Severn into the narrow seas, and they into the main ocean. And thus the ashes of Wycliffe are the emblem of his doctrine, which now is dispersed the world over. What a great picture that is, isn't it? the ashes of Wycliffe going down into the wide sea. Who was this amazing man who was considered to be such a dire threat to the powerful medieval Roman Catholic Church? And why is he still worth knowing and studying today? Well, John Wycliffe is called by many the morning star of the Reformation. What an awesome and picturesque title. What did it mean? Well, the Protestant Reformation would not begin until 1517 when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle. That was 133 years after Wycliffe's death. Yet many of the same central themes and disputes that Luther and the other reformers had in the 16th century with the Roman Catholic Church, Wycliffe raised in his day, and he did so with power and passion. A morning star is a celestial harbinger of the dawn. It's a bright light in the firmament foretelling the end of the night. Poets have often said that the night is, the, is darkest right before the dawn. Well, if that's so, how powerful and hopeful is a morning star twinkling in the darkest night sky, giving hope of a bright day soon to come. Wycliffe was that for the Christian church. Mired in the darkness of the corrupt and doctrinally errant Roman Catholic Church of the Middle Ages, the people yearned 
for the light of truth to shine. Wycliffe, by his courage and his bold proclamation of the truth from Scripture, began to let that light shine as no one had for centuries before him. Wycliffe openly questioned and then opposed the Roman Catholic papacy. He opposed the doctrine of transubstantiation, which was taught by the church concerning the body and blood of Jesus Christ in the communion ordinance. He openly challenged the corruption of the state church, that the visible Roman Catholic Church was truly the church, but rather asserted the doctrine of a pure church chosen by the predestination of God and displayed by the holy lives of the people. He overtly challenged a whole host of medieval Catholic practices, such as pardons issued by priests, indulgence, absolutions, pilgrimages, the worship of images, the adoration of saints, the concept of the treasury of merits, in which the excess good works of the deceased saints could then be credited like a financial account to the accounts of sinners on earth. He also opposed the distinction between venial and mortal sins. All of these were essential to the Roman Catholic, the Middle Ages uh, Roman Catholic Church and its theology. Wycliffe did hold on to the doctrine of purgatory, uh, but considered the sacrament of confession and penance to be, quote, the bondage of Antichrist. He even went so far as to call the Pope himself Antichrist. He asserted that good, sound preaching of the Bible was of more value than any sacrament. More than anything, at the core of Wycliffe's link to the Reformation that would begin over 130 years later was his commitment to test everything by the clear teaching of Scripture and his commitment to see the whole Bible translated into the common English language, the vernacular language of the people, is proof enough of his Protestant-like views. Thus do we call John Wycliffe the morning star of the Reformation. Now, as always with church history, we need to get some context. We need to understand what was going on in his day. And we need to dig into the scandal of a divided papacy. The rise of the papacy, the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, and his authority after the fall of the Roman Empire is one of the central factors in medieval European history. After the Western Roman Empire fell, uh, society in the West, in Western Europe, was, was at a very low anarchistic level. Uh, under Gregory the Great in the 6th century, the Roman Catholic Church rose and gained a central role in every aspect of European life. And in succeeding centuries, the Bishop of Rome, called often the Pope, consolidated his political power, even occasionally compelling powerful kings to kneel in the snow before them to beg forgiveness for their sins. That was the power of the Pope. The Popes were kingmakers and kingbreakers. They demanded power and money from the movers and shakers of Europe and all the small principalities and large kingdoms all over Europe. By their powers of excommunication, by which they could, the Pope could spiritually consign a person to eternal damnation even while they were still living, and interdiction by which all services of Roman Catholic priests in a nation could be suspended until the problems with that nation were rectified, and the Inquisition, by which heretics were investigated, exposed, and condemned to torture and death, the popes dominated the scene for centuries in Europe. But by the time of John Wycliffe, the corruption and overreach of the popes had begun to be exposed. From the year 1309 to 1376, seven successive popes resided not in Rome, 
but in Avignon, in France. All of those popes were French men under the direct control of the French crown, England's sworn enemy. This period of the papacy being in France, not in Rome, came to be known as the Babylonian captivity of the papacy. It ended in 1376 when Pope Gregory XI abandoned Avignon and moved his papal court back to Rome, but he died two years later, 1378, and when he died, his successor, Urban VI, began a feud with the College of Cardinals who had elected him Pope, and this gave rise to the Great Schism of 1378. The Cardinals elected another man Pope who would reign in Avignon, while Pope Urban VI continued to reign in Rome. Each of these powerful, worldly men excommunicated the other. An utter scandal, dueling excommunicating popes. This great schism in the papacy occurred at the height of John Wycliffe's career as a professor of theology at Oxford University, and it strengthened the very things he'd been saying all along about the worldliness and corruption of the papacy itself. Behind all this corruption was the marshy foundation of priests and common church people who knew very little of God's Word. They were utterly ignorant of sound theology and based most of their views on church church traditions that they didn't understand and superstitions that dominated their world with fear. The only remedy, according to John Wycliffe, was the thorough, widespread, careful, accurate teaching of God's Word. Of the Word of God straight from the Bible, that was central to Wycliffe's passion and legacy. Another strong factor in the life and ministry of Wycliffe was the existence of scholasticism, a movement of academic theologians at European universities that were trained in logic and philosophy as well as in the scriptures and who had learned to ask deep and probing questions of of everything, church practices and theology. Central to scholasticism was the desire to harmonize Christian doctrine with human reason and to arrange all of Christian theology in a consistent, orderly system, hopefully free from any contradictions. With scholasticism, these academics learn to love all truth and pursue all questions fearlessly, no matter how radical their conclusions. Yet they sought to navigate through the fixed pillars of unchanging scriptural truth. What they wanted was to carve away bad thinking and corrupt practices as much as possible. Wycliffe was raised and trained in that academic setting in Oxford University in England. So who was this man, John Wycliffe? Well, Wycliffe was a zealot. Let's make this plain assertion. John Wycliffe was a zealot, a man on fire for the truth of God's word. His heart burned to see the truths of God's word conquer the worldliness and corruption of the Roman Catholic hierarchy and to sweep away the superstitions and questionable practices that held the common church people in bondage to their ignorance. It seems he had no sense of humor at all. He was deadly earnest all the time, and he risked his life for a deadly serious work, a work he truly believed in. His origins and initial career are somewhat obscure. We know very little about Wycliffe's birth and his growing up years. That's not at all surprising because such careful records were not usually kept in the 14th century. Seems he was a native of Yorkshire, born perhaps somewhere around the year 1324 in a town near a town called Wycliffe in the Diocese of Durham. He pursued his studies at Oxford, which at that time had six colleges. He was obviously an able student, brilliant, and eventually became a master of scholastic philosophy and theology. He earned his doctoral degree in the year 1372. Eventually, he was acclaimed 
as the leading scholar at Oxford, and his lectures were attended by very large crowds. Now, during that phase of scholasticism, something called nominalism was all the rage. Nominalism taught that there are no universal truths, that universals or general ideas were merely labels or names without any real uh, existence or reality behind them. Wycliffe vigorously opposed this and was an unabashed realist, that there is a real universe with real spiritual beings and real entities. His doctrine was deeply influenced by St. Augustine, and he was at the forefront of a revival of Augustinian studies in England. We should therefore think of Wycliffe as spending the majority of his life and career as a student and then a professor in the university setting. That, that was his world. Now, the hottest issue of the day was something called dominion, or lordship, over men. All scholars agreed that all authority comes ultimately from God. But the question was how that right to rule was transmitted from God to earthly rulers. It is not surprising that the most popular view of the day in medieval Europe was that all truly legitimate authority came from the Roman Catholic Church. In that view, God had entrusted to the Pope universal dominion over all things temporal uh, and over all persons. However, another view was that authority depended less on the mediation of the Roman Catholic Church than on the direct gift of God's grace to the individual. The possessor of legitimate authority had to be in a state of grace, that is, in a right relationship with God. That is, the ruler uh, had to have committed no grievous sin and was walking, it seems, in piety. Some scholars argued that this same would be true of church leaders, that corrupt church leaders had lost all legitimacy before God and should, therefore, lose their positions of power. Wycliffe plunged in on this debate on, the, on that side of the equation. That's what he believed. He believed that individuals who are given power were given it by God for a purpose, and they were accountable to God for how they used it. He actually extended the arguments. He said that the English government had the divinely assigned responsibility to correct the abuses of the church within its realm and expel those church leaders who had persisted in their sin. The power of the English government, he argued, should extend even to the state seizing the property of corrupt church officials. Wycliffe went so far as to expose the popes as well. He said it was obvious that popes could err and that they were not uh, necessary for the administration of the church. A worldly pope was, according to Wycliffe, a heretic and should be removed from office. These themes strongly resonated with most Englishmen who resented the French control of the papacy and with the English rulers of the day, since the Avignon papacy had been draining England of taxes to support itself. Wycliffe had made strong connections with the son of King Edward III, a lord named John of Gaunt. This relationship would end up helping Wycliffe immensely, politically, as events would unfold. Though John of Gaunt was a very worldly man, didn't have uh, Wycliffe's zeal for the Lord at all, it seems, yet he protected Wycliffe, at least initially, from the wrath of the papacy, especially since he agreed that English kings and lords should have the power to remove unworthy clergy. Now, John of Gaunt's Motives were hardly pure. He used this power to remove annoying, irritating priests and put priests in that he could control. He could kind of own them. At any rate, God had orchestrated some political protection for Wycliffe. That's probably why he died in his bed rather than being burned at the stake. 
Not surprisingly, in 1377, the Pope condemned Wycliffe's teachings. The Roman Catholic Church authorities might have moved in immediately and arrested him, except for the political protection he received from John of Gaunt and other influential political friends. Now let's talk about Wycliffe's increasingly radical teachings. Wycliffe would not stay put. His mind would not stay put. His zeal and relentless logic drove him to enact scriptural reforms much further than anyone around him wanted to go. Let's zero in on his idea of a dominion founded on grace. Given the scandalous great papal schism of 1378, the corruption of the Roman Catholic papacy was increasingly obvious to many people. Wycliffe cited this as merely the bad fruit of a generally poisonous tree. Wycliffe took up a strict Augustinian view of predestination, and he argued that the true church was made up only of those elected by God before the foundation of the world and is invisible. Since it's made up of God's choice, no visible church or its officers can control entrance into that true church or exclude any from membership of that true church. By the way, so much for the Pope's power to excommunicate. No Pope or Bishop can know who are the true members of this, of this invisible spiritual church, the church of the elect. Salvation does not therefore depend at all on connection to the visible Roman Catholic Church or upon the mediation of a Catholic priesthood, but solely on election by the eternal God. To be members of the true church, an individual person had to, get, had to have God's grace worked on him. And Wycliffe therefore believed essential to that was that every person in England had to be able to read the Bible for himself. Beyond this, Wycliffe was critical of monks and friars. He actually taught what came to be known as the priesthood of all believers, saying that all true believers are priests in the sight of God. Priests and bishops should be honored only insofar as they live holy lives, who by their clear holiness set an example for the flock. He was especially critical of clergy who used their positions to get conspicuously wealthy. In this way, Wycliffe was a strong precursor to the Protestant Reformation because he was clearing away all the undergrowth and the, uh, the, the, the wreckage, really, of the mediating priesthood and the sacrificial masses of the medieval church, saying that they were no longer necessary for the salvation of the individual person. Now, this laid the groundwork for understanding Luther's doctrine of justification by faith alone. Christ alone is the mediator between God and man, and we gain access to his mediation by grace through faith, not by the professional clergy. As the scandal with the Great, Chimism, uh, great Schism continued to unfold, one pope excommunicating the other, Wycliffe found opportunity to write about a true pope who could occupy St. Peter's seat in Rome, being a man clearly among the poor in spirit living a humble life in open service to the church. The Pope should not be anything like a worldly emperor living in luxury and arrogantly demanding obeisance from terrified subjects. Wycliffe detested the trappings of power and luxury that surrounded the papacy of his day. As things unfolded, Wycliffe began to see the popes, both of them, as enemies of Christ. They were both antichrists, according to Wycliffe. One was no better than the other. And the whole system that pushed them forward into, into power was itself corrupt. Wycliffe wrote, Christ is the truth. The Pope is the principle of falsehood. Christ live in poverty. 
The Pope labors for worldly magnificence. Christ refused temporal dominion. The Pope seeks it. End quote. He, d- he condemned the cult of the saints, which dominated the church calendar and was wrapped up into the superstitions of the common people. There was a patron saint for every situation and every village and hamlet and town and for every profession, for every aspect of life, there was a patron saint. And the common people were taught to pray to these saints and offer money in their name and other offerings to them when circumstances in life called for them. This was paganism and polytheism with a thin veneer of Christianity painted over it. In the summer of 1380, he also began questioning the validity of transubstantiation. This got him into more hot water than any other view he held in his life. The mysterious transformation of the bread and wine into the actual body and blood of Christ was at the absolute center of Roman Catholic theology, the Roman Catholic mass and of their religion. He published 12 arguments against the idea that the bread and wine were transformed into the body and blood of Christ. He said the early church held that the consecrated elements of the Lord's Supper were just efficacious symbols of Christ's body and blood. Hence, Christ should be seen to be present in the Lord's Supper sacramentally and spiritually, not actually. The goal of the sacrament is the spiritual presence of Christ in the worshiper's soul by faith, not by eating. Now, this attack on the Lord's Supper effectively ended Wycliffe's support by John of Gaunt and by almost all of the Oxford scholars. He had gone too far, as far as they were concerned. He was in intense hot water for this. By 1382, his views were denounced as heretical by the Archbishop of Canterbury. He was effectively silenced from all teaching at Oxford. Now, the centerpiece of Wycliffe's convictions and of his legacy was his views on the authority of the scriptures. All of these doctrines that Wycliffe was challenging and rolling out flowed from Wycliffe's central source of wisdom and spiritual knowledge, the Bible, the Word of God. Wycliffe was the morning star of the Reformation primarily because of his zeal to test everything by scripture and to follow the scriptures wherever they led. Wycliffe wrote, neither the testimony of Augustine or Jerome nor any other saint should be accepted except insofar as it was based on the Scripture. He believed that the Scriptures belonged to the true Church, the Church of the elect, not merely the visible hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church. The Catholic leaders were intense in their opposition to the translation of the Bible into the vernacular, the common language of the people. But Wycliffe believed that every person had the right to examine the Scriptures for himself. He wrote these words, quote, The New Testament is of full authority and open to the understanding of simple men as to the points most needful for salvation. He that keeps meekness and charity has the true understanding and perfection of all holy writ. In other words, he said the scriptures, as insofar as they lead to salvation, are clear to everybody. You can read them and you can understand them and they'll save your soul. Why is this true? Well, he said this, for Christ did not write his laws on tables or on skins of animals but in the hearts of men. In this, more than anything, Wycliffe was the morning star of the Reformation because central to the Reformation of the 16th century was the principle of sola scriptura, that the scriptures alone are the final authority for every aspect of life and godliness. And therefore, Luther 
labored to get the entire Bible translated into the common German language of the people. So also Wycliffe advocated and labored to that end in the English language. He recruited scholars at Oxford who started, started with Jerome's Latin Vulgate. They did not translate from the Greek and the Hebrew, but they went from Jerome's Latin Vulgate. And they translated book after book into common English. It's not clear that Wycliffe himself did any of the translating, but he recruited scholars uh, to do that work. The next great task was to get the teachings of the Word of God disseminated among the common people as widely as possible. And that brings us to the Lollards. The Lollards. To get the gospel out, Wycliffe recruited, trained, and sent out traveling preachers. He gave them no particular name, sometimes calling them poor priests that preach, or unlearned and simple men, or faithful and true priests, or simply itinerant preachers. Their enemies, mocking them, called them lollards, meaning mumblers. Wycliffe sent them out to preach wherever they could get a hearing, on the roads, in the village greens and churchyards, or in churches. They were clothed in russet-colored robes of rough cloth that reached down to their feet. They carried long staffs in their hands with no sandals or purse or backpacks. They took lodging wherever anyone would take them in and feed them. They were trained in the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments and other basic scriptural teachings, all in the vernacular English. They were each given a few pages of the English Bible to carry with them. This is the translation work that's going on in Oxford. Keep in mind, this is before the printing press. So these pages were all hand-copied and highly precious. The pages would be of a portion of one of the Gospels or one of the Epistles. These traveling preachers knew enough theology to teach contrary to all the folk mythology of the people of their day and to bring their hearers to a right understanding of the true gospel of faith in Jesus Christ. Wycliffe had written out some basic sermons for them to learn and preach, along with some prepared paraphrases of Bible teachings. In direct contrast to the preaching of the day, which focused on miracles, myths, fables, and the lives of the saints, Wycliffe used sound and careful exegesis of Bible passages, and the Lollards used that approach wherever they preached. He wanted them to continue the itinerant life and never settle down with families. Initially, most of them were university students, but in the end, the movement was made up almost exclusively of the poorest levels of society. Now let's talk about the legacy of John Wycliffe. As time went on, these Lollards became Wycliffe's greatest living legacy. They were violently abused and attacked, but they persevered in the ministry for years. They fearlessly attacked the corruptions of the church and were viciously persecuted for doing that. The bishops could not allow this prolonged attack on their power, and they cracked down on them violently. But for decades after Wycliffe's death, they continued his vision for a healthy church based on the Word of God alone. Central to Wycliffe's legacy is his commitment to get the Bible into the hands and hearts of the people of England in their own language. The scholars that followed Wycliffe kept working on the Bible translation, getting it into clearer and clearer English. The Lollards and other priests who caught the vision uh, preached the Word of God to their people, driving out the darkness of ignorance and superstition and resulting in the eternal salvation of countless English people. They're up in heaven now. The English church and royal authorities eventually saw the Lollards as a major threat to their power and in 1408 enacted legislation called the Constitutions of Oxford, which forbade anyone to translate or even to read a vernacular version of the Bible without the approval of the bishop. 
These laws against the English Bible remained in force until the establishment of Reformed religion well into the 16th century in England. But the laws could not totally suppress the spread of the English Bible, and souls were saved despite Satan's attempt to stop God's Word. The Apostle Paul said in his final epistle, God's Word is not chained. 2 Timothy 2.9 So, dear friend, when you pick up the Bible, even today perhaps, and read it in good, clear English, you're holding in your hand the legacy of John Wycliffe, the force that he unleashed into the world so many centuries ago that has been disseminated widely, really even to the ends of the earth. Actually, perhaps you don't even realize this, but there is no language, language in the world which has so many viable translations of the Bible as does the English language. I was a missionary in Japan, and the Japanese people, 125 million of them, have only two translations of the Bible in the Japanese language. One of them is an overtly Roman Catholic translation with a Catholic slant on some key verses. And the other is in such old Japanese, archaic Japanese, as to make it, I'm told, extremely difficult for modern Japanese people to understand it. But I regularly use the King James Version the New American Standard Bible, the New International Version, the English Standard Version, and the Christian Standard Bible. All of them committee translations that are rich and powerful and accurate. All told, you may not know this, but there have been over 450 translations of the Bible into the English language. And about 20 million Bibles are sold in the United States every year. We are truly blessed in the English language. Now, Wycliffe's le legacy went beyond this. It extended beyond the borders of his own country of England. In Bohemia, modern-day Czech Republic, an ardent priest named John Huss got hold of Wycliffe's writings and took them passionately to heart. Huss's reformation in Prague was powerful and met with both lavish fruit and vicious persecution. Jan Huss taught almost exactly the same doctrines as Martin Luther would almost exactly 100 years before Luther taught them. Huss was condemned as a heretic by the Roman Catholic authorities at the Council of Constance in 1415, the same council that denounced the long-deceased Wycliffe as a heretic for the same reason they were linked together. It was based on that ruling that the Pope ordered Wycliffe's bones exhumed and burned as a heretic. But as I said, the order wasn't carried out until 1428. So through John Huss, the ideas of Wycliffe spread into Central Europe and strongly influenced Martin Luther and his development when the time came for the Protestant Reformation. So as we conclude today, I want you to go into your week knowing that your loving Heavenly Father holds your life and all your ways in His hands. Nothing can happen to you apart from His will. He orchestrates the rise and fall of mighty empires and the death of sparrows that no one ever sees. He has numbered the very hairs of your head, and all the days ordained for you were written in his book before one of them came to be. And he has gone ahead of you to prepare a specific set of good works for you to walk in, good works that are essential to his eternal kingdom. Just as your brothers and sisters in Christ live for his glory in their day, do the same in yours by the power of his Spirit, for the glory of his Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians 
make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.